This morning, I think I, the handful of times I've stood in this pulpit, I've said pretty much the same thing every time, and that is it is absolutely terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to teach this church family that I love so much and lead us in the worship of our Lord. So, Lord willing, let's do just that. I wonder how many of you might have seen the 2012 movie Lincoln, a Spielberg movie, Daniel Day-Lewis played Lincoln, the title role. Personally, when I saw it, I was pretty taken by it, and the weekend I saw it, I called somebody that I respect greatly, and I was pretty sure he'd seen the movie before, and I was just kind of going on and on about what I liked about the movie and questions I had and all this, and, and he, he just paced, patiently listened, and, and then I got to the end, and he said, yeah, I tried for about 45 minutes, but it was just so slow and boring, I just flipped it off. It seems that's how far too many Christians think about the Old Testament in general, but specifically a book like Numbers, which we are going to be studying this morning. And in some respects, I understand. The first ten chapters of Numbers are essentially a census of the tribes of Israel, all the rules surrounding the establishment of worship in the tabernacle. It's not riveting reading by any means. And I'm afraid that many, like this friend I referenced with Lincoln, they they may start in and then just kind of find themselves bored to tears and then just kind of find themselves going back to something that feels a whole lot more comfortable like maybe the New Testament. But if we do that, we are missing out on some of the most profound truths in all of Scripture. Case in point, this morning we are going to be looking at what has to be one of the strangest, yet one of the most profound portraits of Christ that we find in all of Scripture in a book that many consider to be tedious and boring, Numbers chapter 21 and the Bronze Serpent. In fact, this portrait of Christ is is so profound, it literally just links Scripture together from beginning to end, and we have an amazing picture of the Gospel right here in this book. This is an extremely important text. I think it has a wonderful message for us this morning, and I'm excited for the opportunity to teach it. So we're just going to read the narrative in one chunk, and then we'll go back and study it together. So Numbers chapter 21, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard this morning if... You're not following along exactly. So verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, you see what I mean here about this being a little bit strange. This is, this is kind of weird. I think if anything, after we read a passage like this, we might have more questions than answers. Questions like, why a bronze serpent? 
Why not a bronze lamb? Seems a whole lot more biblical. We sacrifice the Passover lamb, not the Passover snake. And anyway, I thought serpents were evil. Satan is synonymous uh, with serpents throughout all the scripture, so that whole thing just kind of seems weird. And, and by the way, what's up with this anyway? I mean, God is just regulating here, wiping people out, his own chosen people, I might add, by the hundreds. What's up with that? Well, Lord willing, we will answer those and, and other important questions as we study this text together this morning. But before we dig into it, it's always important that we understand the context, even though we just have this one morning together here in the book of Numbers. It's important that we take the time to do that. And so the context is basically the book of Numbers is about the numbering and wandering experiences of two generations of the nation of Israel. But it's why they were wandering that's important to understand because it explains the two generations covered in this book. So the first generation participated in the exodus from Egypt. Their story begins back in Exodus chapter 2 verse 23, continues all the way through Leviticus and then into the first 14 chapters of Numbers. And you might remember, this is the generation that witnessed the plagues in Egypt. They saw firsthand God's miraculous saving of them from Egypt as he parted the Red Sea. It was this generation that's numbered in the first chapter of Numbers that was to conquer Canaan, the promised land, promised to Abraham some 400 years earlier. But this was also a rebellious generation. From the golden calf to Miriam and Aaron questioning Moses' leadership, multiple times Moses interceded for them in the face of God's judgment on them. But of all their rebellions, their refusal to enter the promised land seemed to have tested the Lord's patience the most. And just a refresher on that, you might remember a party of 12 scouts spied out the land of Canaan and returned to give their report. Ten of them were fearful because of the strength of the opposition they saw. They put fear into the hearts of the people. But the other two, Joshua and Caleb, they urged the people to trust God, to claim his promises. Again, all this is in Numbers 13 and 14 if you're interested. But those two are overruled, as the Israelites actually say that we should just return to Egypt. Kind of a, a familiar refrain. And the Lord's response is chilling. He says in Numbers 14, 11, How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of the miraculous signs I have performed among them? And so again, Moses intercedes, but there is judgment. And the judgment was that the generation that experienced the miraculous signs in Egypt and the Exodus, every adult age 20 and over would not enter into the promised land, but they would instead wander 40 years in the wilderness and die there. Only Joshua and Caleb were to accompany the new generation uh, into the land. So the book of Numbers then records almost 39 of the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness and judgment from God. And as the first generation dies out, a second numbering of the people is given in, num in uh, Numbers chapter 26. That was the generation that did go to war. They did inherit the land. Again, it's told at the beginning of Numbers 26. And then their story continues all the way through Deuteronomy and Joshua. So hopefully that gives us a, a little bit important background about where we are in the book of Numbers, specific to our text this morning. The 40th year of wandering began in chapter 20, so obviously our chapter 21 falls into this final year before beginning the conquest of the promised land, meaning the Israelites here would have been comprised of maybe the last few of the previous generation, but mostly this is going to be the second generation. So now with that background, we jump into our text we're going to reread verses 1 through 3, and the first thing we're going to find there is Israel's plight and the Lord's response. 
So again, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people into my hand, I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. So we don't know exactly what prompted this. The text doesn't tell us. But apparently the king of Arad, a region of important Canaanite cities, viewed the movements of the Israelites as a threat. So they attacked Israel. They took some prisoners in the process. And, and Israel's response was to turn to the Lord. And as one people, they made a vow that if God returned their people, they would destroy Arad. The Lord heard their cry, the people made good on their vow, and they destroyed those cities. They named it Hormah, meaning destruction. It was God's power that had destroyed this formidable enemy, which was an important lesson for them as they were about to conquer the land of Canaan through many battles. They would have to trust the Lord to fight those battles. So this was their plight, and that was the Lord's response. They turned to the Lord, they trusted him, it was all good. Unfortunately, their trust in the Lord didn't last too long, as we find in the very next verses, verses 4 and 5, Israel's rebellious sin, which says, And they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So from here, Moses, led by God, Instead of taking the direct route through Edom, chose instead to head east, going around Edom. And basically that meant a long, circuitous route. Not only that, it meant taking them back on the road to the Red Sea, the place they'd left almost four decades previously. And so in the minds of the people, they must have thought, man, we're, just, we're taking two steps forward and three steps back here. God was, in essence, backtracking through the most desolate, dry parts of the Sinai. Along the way, you've got to figure they saw familiar landmarks they'd already passed, and they became impatient and began to rebel and grumble against God. Just as their forefathers who died in the wilderness had done so often, they began to verbally attack God and Moses. And, and in this, we find an especially horrible attack in verse 5, when they complained the food was worthless. And what was this, this horrible food that they loathed so much? Well, the answer takes us back to Exodus 16, just after they're witnessing the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and God alone saving Israel from their horrible bondage. They complained they had no food. Again, we should have just stayed in Egypt. At least we have food there. And so in response, God rained manna from heaven each morning, enough for that day's provision. We don't know exactly what manna was, but apparently it was the perfect food with the perfect nutrients because it sustained Israel for the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness. But that's no longer good enough for this generation. So they're rejecting God's chosen path to enter the promised land, and they're rejecting God's gracious provision through the manna in their sinfully grumbling, rebelling against him, growing impatient. But as horrible as that is, We learn much later in John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6, the stakes are higher than these Israelites could have ever imagined. Because John chapter 6 is where the Jews of Jesus' day are explaining their lack in belief of Jesus uh, as the Christ, saying they needed a sign, even though they'd had many. But they reference the manna in that chapter, and they they say, you know, our fathers had had received manna from Moses in the wilderness. What are you going to do, Jesus? So Jesus answers, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so what happened? Verse verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. So we have an amazing picture of Christ right here in John chapter 6, as Christ, referring back to Exodus and Numbers, says, He's the true manna. He's the bread of life sent from heaven. The manna of the Old Testament was a picture, a type, a shadow of Christ, the true manna. But in that, we also find a sad illustration of Israel's generational hard-heartedness toward God and His saving provision. Although they didn't understand it at the time of Numbers 21, as we learn later in John chapter 6, by complaining against God's provision of manna, they were actually rejecting the provision of His Son, the true bread of life from heaven. And just as those Israelites rejected God's provision for life in Numbers 21, their descendants 1,400 years later rejected the true manna, Jesus Christ. So they rebelled, and now we find God's response to their rebellion. And in God's response to their rebellion, we are reminded that the wages of sin is death. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. This is probably one of the clearest illustrations in the scripture that the wages of sin is death. In, in this case, God sending fiery serpents, which killed many of this rebellious generation. You have to figure this was a pretty painful way to die. When these snakes bit people, poisonous venom pulsed through their veins until their skin burned fiery hot. Death was painful. It was quick. It was certain. Many died without a cure. But right here is where we run into one of those difficult issues I referenced at the beginning. Because many are uncomfortable with this. I mean, was this really necessary? Did God need to painfully destroy a portion of his people because of sin? Couldn't he have been a little more loving and tolerant? I mean, this is that that God of the Old Testament, that God of wrath that we're always hearing about, right? Well, that can be an an all-too-common response to difficult passages like this, which is why I think we just need to take a few minutes to deal with this. I realize the subject of the wrath of God is not everybody's favorite subject, but... It is essential to the gospel, and we've come across it in our text, so I think we're behooved to just spend a few minutes on it. And it's important to know that Scripture explicitly says we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Christ. Why do we need to be saved from the wrath of God, just like the Israelites that day did? Because of who He is, And who we are. He is perfectly holy creator. And we are depraved sinners creatures. That's what we must understand. And it's what the Israelites needed to understand. That our sins are not just sort of generic mistakes. Kind of like an oops, sorry, that just sort of floats out to nowhere. Our sins are specifically against God. Of course, that's reflected in numerous places in Scripture, but one of the more straightforward is in Psalm 51, where David is repenting in anguish for his sin and committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then having her husband murdered to cover it up, which then resulted in the baby of that illicit union dying because of God's judgment. So in the Psalm, King David, the king of Israel, Psalm 51, verse 4, speaking to God, he says, against you, 
God. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And you might read that at first and, and think, what in the world is he talking about? He, he sinned against Bathsheba. He obviously sinned against her husband. He sinned against the baby. You can make the case he sinned against the entire nation of Israel as their king. And then he turns around and says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Why did the Spirit write that through David? Well, we certainly sin against people, absolutely, and it's not to minimize that at all. But the most offended party regarding our sin is always God. Ultimately, every sin we commit is a transgression of His standard. It's a fist up in the air at Him. It is open, hostile rebellion against Him. That's what our sin is, every single sin. And as all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 says, we are all worthy of the punishment of our sin, which is eternal death, as Romans 6.23 says. The Bible does not play around with this. God does not play around with this. In fact, the Bible says things like Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. Not only is God angry at his sin and his wrath is coming, he says he's actually storing up his wrath. Which is why Hebrews 10 says if we reject Christ's atoning work on the cross for our sins, if we say, no thanks God, I'm good, I can get there on my own, then God promises us, Hebrews 10 verse 27, that we have nothing to look forward to but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. Verse 31, it's a terrifying thing, it's a thing to fall into the hands of of the living God that gives me chills every time I read that. Now, of course, in saying all of that, let me be very, very clear. As Ezekiel 18.32 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. All of that is not to say God's sitting up in heaven just saying, oh, I just can't wait to get back at those stupid people. That, that's not what this is saying. But his holy, righteous, perfect, just nature demands our sin to be punished. He would not be wholly just perfect if he did not punish our sin. So the reality of what we're studying here in Numbers 21, as horrible as this must have been and as difficult as it might be to read, really this should just shake us up because this is a foretaste of the true reality of the judgment of sin. Because, of course, it's not only physical death that we experience as a result of our sin, but it's eternal death and hell as we all stand condemned before holy God. That, that's, that's serious stuff. That's probably about as serious as it gets. But the good news is God is not only a God of wrath. And although he would be completely justified in sending the entire rebellious human race to hell for eternity, he would not be violating his justice by doing that. God doesn't leave it there because God is loving, gracious, merciful. He's a saving God. But the first step in receiving his grace and salvation is recognizing and repenting of our sin as the Israelites did here in verse 7. The sting of the serpents had awakened their sensitivity to their sin. They openly admitted their sin of speaking against the Lord. Their only hope was repentant prayer. And so in desperation, they begged Moses to intercede on their behalf. Of course, the irony being they were asking the one they cursed to pray for their blessing. Much like Christ did on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. Moses prayed that God would forgive this rebellious people. 
But this desperate recognition and asking for intercessory prayer was not enough to save them. It was the vital, important first step, but that alone was not enough. Because God says in verses 8 and 9, the gift of life must be lifted up and believed on. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So the Lord commands Moses to make a fiery bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Whoever would look at it would live. But this again prompts another one of those questions I referenced at the beginning. Why did God have a symbol of the curse, a symbol of the very things that were killing them, fiery snakes? Why did he have that fixed on a pole as the only remedy for certain death? And of course, this is where it gets really good because as I said at the beginning, this is where it connects scripture from beginning to end in the gospel. Now, of course, if you have any familiarity with the Bible at all, we've come across serpents and death before in Scripture. You don't have to read too far. The third chapter of the first book, Genesis chapter 3, we find Satan taking the form of a serpent, tempting Eve, who along with Adam chose to rebel against God's word, and sin and death entered the world and the human race. And in Genesis 3.15, the Lord pronounced a curse on the serpent, the devil, and saying the curse would result in enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. The blessed son of the woman's seed would someday bring a crushing defeat of the serpent. And so millennia later here in Numbers 21, the very symbol of death from the beginning, the serpent was fixed on a pole, saving those who looked on it. But of course, this salvation here was only temporary. They only escaped physical death for a time. All those who were saved that day eventually went on and died. So obviously this wasn't the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Of course, we know the ultimate eternal fulfillment is referenced in Christ in John 3, 14 and 15, where Christ is having a conversation with Nicodemus about how one can receive eternal life. And Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So although real people were really saved of real physical death that day in the desert, We learn in John 3 this whole thing was a prophetic type anticipating God's greatest demonstration of his grace, love, and justice, Jesus Christ, and his atoning, propitiating work on the cross, saving his people that had rebelled against him, but who repent of that rebellion, look on Christ, and believe. So God ordered Moses to make a bronze serpent as a prophetic object lesson, and it answers why a bronze serpent. The answer is, that which cured them of the curse had to be shaped into the likeness of that which wounded them. That which cured them of the curse had to be shaped in the likeness of that which wounded them. And that's the perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Of course, the Bible teaches that Christ was made in the image of sinful man. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. A snake was a symbol of Christ's identity with the curse of sin on our behalf. And just as the serpent was put on top of or impaled upon a pole for all to see, so too Christ said he must be lifted up, as I just read in John 3. And when he was lifted up on the cross, he was demonstrating God's sovereign power to save his people. And we, just as the Israelites that day, are in desperate need of the Savior. And so Numbers 21 says, Everyone who was bitten died. There was no human cure. There was no remedy. The fangs of the serpent struck a death blow at man's heel. 
And again, that's a perfect picture of man's spiritual condition. Just like the Israelites, every one of us are stung by the serpent and worthy of death. But when they looked upon the object of their curse, they lived. Jesus likewise taught all who believe in him, live. So here's the amazing truth that we find right here in the middle of Numbers. We find the most amazing picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the story of the bronze serpent, we're reminded that all have sinned and the wages of sin is death. That God's wrath on sin is righteous and just. That God's grace is the only provision for the curse of sin. That Christ was made in the likeness of man yet without sin. That the cross is a symbol of man's curse. That Christ became sin that we might be saved from death. That God's justice was completely satisfied when he poured out his wrath on his son. That as the bronze serpent was lifted up for Israel to see, so Christ is lifted up for all the world to see. And that one must look by faith personally upon God's remedy for our salvation. And then just to connect scripture together from beginning to end, as I promised in the future, we're reminded when Christ returns to claim his own, Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, will, according to Revelation 21, be taken and thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And sin and death is defeated once and for all, for all who are Christ. It's all God's work. It's all his plan. It's amazing to witness how he orchestrates all of this for his own glory. I mean, how glorious this is. God is so amazing to orchestrate these types and shadows of the Savior. And, and how majestic to be reminded of the gospel right here in good old boring numbers. But as glorious as that is, we also in this text learn some incredibly important truths regarding our faith in Christ beyond our justification. Beyond our repenting and believing in Him and being saved by His righteousness. And specifically we learn Two incredibly significant truths in this text regarding our ongoing walk with God in faith. Just as the Israelites were walking with God in the desert for 40 years, having to trust His plan, so must we. And in their rebellious walk and lack of faith, we're reminded of two important truths. The first is, the first is, God's ways are not man's ways. God's ways are not our ways. If you're at all familiar with the Old Testament or even just the books of Exodus and Numbers, you're probably aware of Israel's constant complaining and grumbling against God about the way he was orchestrating things. It was constant. And it was so, excuse me, it was so often on the heels of their witnessing God's just continuous, miraculous, gracious caring for them on the heels of witnessing displays of his majestic power. And then despite that, they would just kind of continually go from awe to just outright sinful rebellion. And it's easy to read that. You read that over and over. It's easy to read that and just think, what in the world was wrong with these people? Gosh, were they stupid or something? What is going on here? And I think that would be a natural response, except I would argue we're exactly the same way. How? In what ways? Well, let's review what the Israelites were guilty of and see if it ever fits us. They questioned God's holiness and goodness in leading them all these years. Their grumbling was a rejection of God's grace and His sovereign plan. The path that God had chosen was the path that they despised. Was God really in charge of their lives? Did He even care about their difficulties? 
So before we get too uppity and when we're reading these stories, I, I, I think instead of condemning the Israelites, we should turn around and ask ourselves, have we ever been like that? Despite all of the good God has provided in your life, on top of the amazing good of saving you, even though that's the last thing you deserve, on top of that, all the good he has provided in your life, have you ever bemoaned God's providential care of your life? Has disappointment, discouragement, distance ever characterized your attitude toward God? Have you been frustrated with the way he's governing your life or maybe the world? Shamefully, it has mine. I'm just like the Israelites way too often. Which, by the way, is exactly why God says these stories are here for us. You don't need to flip over there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is, is listing uh, a number of these events from the Old Testament. And picking up in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That's what we're studying. Now, these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the amazing story of the bronze serpent, of course, secondary to its being a picture of the cross. Scripture tells us this is here for us to not desire evil as they did. So taking Scripture's admonishment to learn from this and not repeat their evil, what specific evil, what specific sin do we find the Israelites committing here? That's what we want to answer because we don't want to repeat that. Well, what led to their sin was their not recognizing that God's ways are not our ways. Scripture clearly admonishes us to trust God's ways above our own, especially when they lead us through the minefields of adversity, especially when he leads us down paths that we don't want to go. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's what we need to know about our walk with God. God is going to continually put us in situations like we see him doing with the Israelites. God is going to continually put us in situations in our lives to test our faith to see if we will trust him in all things and to learn to trust him in all things. And we could buck against that. We can fight against it. But he cares so much about us that he's going to continue to teach us that lesson. And just like the Israelites who wanted to go through Eden, not back around to where they'd already been, extending their wanderings, so too we will be put in situations that, that just do not make sense to us and that we just don't like. We don't want to be here. And how are we going to respond? Well, typically there are two responses. We have two choices. We can respond with faith or we can respond with impatience, which leads us to the second truth we're reminded of and we finally get specifically to Israel's sin that we don't want to repeat. We must not respond to God, God's leading in our lives with the sin of impatience but instead remain in ongoing faith of him through his power. 
Back to our text, we learn specifically what led to the people sinning against God. It's right there in verse 4. If you have the New King James, you'll find the word discouraged. But the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, they all translate it. Impatient is actually a little bit better translation. So when the people headed off in what they considered to be the wrong direction, they sinned by growing impatient. And I wonder how many of us, when we think of sin, do we think of impatience? We might think of a whole lot of things, but do we think of impatience? But make no mistake, impatience is a sin. It's a sin because, as John Piper says, impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. The opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss. It's a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience, to wait in his place and go at his pace. So how do we patiently endure in his place at his pace? Well, the keys we learn in our text is faith. And there are four practical aspects of ongoing patient faith that we're going to consider and then we'll be done. First, we patiently endure in God's place at his pace by faith because faith recognizes our strength is in God. Faith recognizes our strength is in God. When we're in the thick of it, when we're discouraged like the Israelites and we're tempted to sin against God, growing impatient with his plan, that doesn't mean, oh yeah, i got to activate, activate my faith and then we respond with a faith of our own power. That's not faith. Faith isn't just grinning and bearing it. Just, oh, I hate this God, but I'll get through it. That's not what faith is. The world can do that. Faith isn't just kind of offering platitudes to get us through. Hallmark cards can do that. Faith isn't just hoping beyond hope. It's all going to work out somehow. That's Disney theology wishing upon a star. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is found in Colossians 1.11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, all endurance and patience with joy. God gives us strength to endure with patience and joy, not us. And specifically, his power of patience is given through his spirit and his word. Patience, of course, is listed as one of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5. But again, that empowerment is exercised by faith. And that's, that's the amazing and often overlooked aspect of faith. I think too often we think of faith as being past. It's that thing we exercise to get saved and now we're good. But that's not the truth. Faith is not just past. It is ongoing moment by moment. And think about, just think about the impact that correct understanding of faith should have on our lives. Think about those who had been bitten that, that day. In Numbers 21, they were in extreme pain. They were quickly dying, and they looked on the bronze serpent. Do you think they just sort of casually glanced at it, like we might just sort of casually glance at our iPhones? I don't think so. I think in complete desperation and faith in God and His Word, they fixed all they had on that serpent. They desperately wanted to be saved and they desperately clung to God's promise that they would be as a result. Here's what we need to remember about our faith. 
Once we look upon Jesus, we repent and we're saved in faith. That doesn't mean we just go on with our lives. Thanks for the gift of salvation through faith, God. That's awesome. I don't have to go to hell now. Stoked. Now I can just kind of go on with my life in my own power. Not at all. The reality of the Christian walk is the more we go on in our lives as believers, just like those Israelites fixing their gains on the serpent, the more we go on in our lives as believers, the more desperately, the more intensely we look upon our Savior, the more intensely we cling to his promises in his word. We don't need him less once we're saved. If anything, we need him more. And by the way, that's one of the hallmarks of a growing, maturing Christian. I think sometimes we have a mistake of what a, a mature Christian is. is Some of you just sort of floats above the fray. They're just beyond all that. that. That's not what a growing, maturing Christian is. A growing, maturing Christian is one who has a constant, desperate dependence on Christ in faith through his power. It's someone who realizes that the more they go on, the weaker they are. And thus, the more desperately they need Christ day to day, moment by moment. And that leads us to the second aspect of ongoing faith. Because one of the ways that continual faith is exercised and we patiently endure in God's place at his pace by faith is because faith recognizes the path of faithfulness is almost never a straight path to glory. The path of faithfulness is almost never a straight path to glory. I wanted to say it never is. I don't know that I could categorically state that. But it sure seems like it almost never is. As we studied, the Israelites, by God's leading, took far from a straight, easy path to the promised land. Probably it was the last path they would have chosen. And almost assuredly, you've experienced the same thing in your life, probably, probably numerous times, maybe right now. I know I have. In some ways, I feel like I am. In fact, as I take stock of my life, it seems more often than not, God's place and pace is not mine. And I can grow very impatient going, God, what's the deal? What are you doing? Why am I still here? I don't understand this. How do we not repeat that sin of the Israelites? Well, as we've been talking about, we exercise faithful patience in him and his word and his strength. We recognize the path of faithfulness is almost never a straight path to glory, like I just said. And we do those things... By knowing and trusting that God is sovereignly good. We do those things by knowing and trusting that God is sovereignly good. And, and just briefly, that means God is sovereignly, providentially directing every atom of this universe. Which, by the way, would be positively scary if he wasn't also perfectly good, which he is. He is perfectly sovereign and he is perfectly good. And for you, that means you can trust him and his word with all of your heart on an ongoing basis, just as you trust him for your salvation, that every delay, every detour, every difficulty that comes about in your life is sovereignly guided by him, and that through that, he's always working good. And by the way, that truth is not just stated once in scripture, that verse we all love to quote, Romans eight twenty eight. It's all over the place. Places like Psalm 23, that well-known chapter psalm 23 6 where it says surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life i reference that because that's not long after he says even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death surely goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life 
Isaiah 64.4, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This is one of the most glorious and freeing truths in all of scripture. God is in charge of everything and he's working everything for good. But when I say that, please don't misunderstand that. Because I'm not preaching Joel Osteen Christianity. This does not mean if you hold on long enough, if you just have enough faith, eventually you'll make more money. Eventually you'll be healed of that disease. Eventually you'll find a spouse. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to your kids. No, it means despite when those things happen, even when the worst happens, even when the cure never comes, We can joyfully trust it is all part of God's perfect plan. The God who is directing all of it for good. The God who loves you with a love unimaginable. A love he displayed on the cross so you could be saved. God's path is not always easy and straight. It almost certainly is not going to be. But it is perfect. And he is good. And he loves you. Know that. And trust that. And that leads us to the third way. We patiently endure in God's place at his pace by faith. Because faith recognizes patient trust, even in the most difficult of circumstances, is the path to promise. Patient trust is the path to promise. Like we just said, the path is probably not going to be straight. Probably not going to be the way we planned. But it is the path to promise. Remember I just read Psalm 23.6, which says, God is pursuing us with goodness and mercy all of our days. All of our days, even in what appears to us to be the worst of times, God is pursuing us with goodness and mercy. And therefore, as we've said, impatient complaining in response to this amazing God and his perfect care for us is nothing short of sinful unbelief. It's doubting those promises. It's doubting God. It's doubting God is who he says he is, which is good and faithful. Which is why the command to not be impatient as the Israelites were, but instead patient, is so significant. Because as we've said, impatience is sin, but patience is the path to promise. So instead of imitating the sinful impatience of the Israelites in Numbers 21, Hebrews 6.12 tells us, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God is sovereign, God is good, and we can patiently, faithfully trust in Him and His path as through that ongoing faith we receive life in Him and the immeasurable riches that come with knowing Christ. And that truth is followed by our fourth and final way. We patiently endure in God's place at his pace by faith. And that's because faith recognizes patience is a fruit of ongoing faith in God. And I wanted to finish off with this one because it's important. It's important because it reminds us patience is not a work of the flesh. It some, doesn't somehow earn our favor with God. But it is a fruit of our faith as a result of God saving us. Remember Ephesians 2.10 tells us we've been saved for good works. I think we can often read passages like that and think, ah, man, maybe I should go 
feed the homeless or maybe we should consider adopting a child. I should definitely get in on that water well project they have going on. I, have, I can't remember the last time I witnessed for sure I need to be witnessing more. And all of those things could be fruit of our salvation. They're all good things. But again, I wonder how often we think of faithful patience as a fruit of our ongoing faith in God, part of our good works. How often we might be doing good works, going to church, reading our Bibles, praying, trying to be godly fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, business people, etc. But then in the midst of all that, we're actually horribly sinning because we're impatient and we're not trusting God. We forget that that's a work, that's a fruit of our salvation. We constantly need to be reminded that we're saved for good works. And one of those good works as a result of our salvation is patience in God's place and pace in faith. What glorious truth we're able to study here in Numbers chapter 21 and the bronze serpent. Not only are we reminded of the amazing picture we have of the gospel, but we're also reminded of how faith in Christ continues and grows throughout our lives until our Savior returns or we go to be with Him. So as we head off this morning, let me encourage you to leave with these truths. Conquer the unbelief of impatience through faith in God and His promises. He's already saved you, even though that's the last thing you deserve. That's the much harder thing to do. Of course, He's going to do the lesser and keep you through eternity, just as He promises, which, by the way, includes right now, whatever is going on in your life right now. Wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Fight the good fight of faith, especially in the times when you're not in the place or pace you desire. Look on Him who saved you. Desperately cling to Him in His Word, in faith. Trust Him who is everything, in everything, as He grows you in His image and works all things according to His perfect and good plan. Know that. Believe that. Live that. Desperately cling to him moment by moment as if your life depends on it because it does. Let's pray. Our holy, amazing God, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the amazing reminder and picture of the gospel we have here in Numbers 21 that even though we don't deserve it, you have saved us. You love us and we love you as a result. But we're also thankful for the reminder that you are always with us, you are always guiding us, that every aspect of our lives in the world is part of your perfect plan. And Lord, I just pray that you give us the power through your spirit and word to believe that and trust that, to be a people who live in a bold way, full of joy and patience, because we trust you and and your perfect plan in our lives. We're so grateful that you don't just leave us floundering about, but you are in sovereign, perfect control of everything. What a joy that should be to us. We praise you, our almighty God. We're so grateful and thankful for you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us into fellowship with you. Thank you for leading us into eternity. We love you, our God. Amen.